Well, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. Those of you who are in our Bible study on Wednesday night will recognize some of this material. Most of it uh, I have not covered in the, the Wednesday night meeting. Um, I am in the process of doing an in-depth study of the, the Gospel of John. And this first chapter, it's unbelievable the truth that is in here. And my message is in verse 14. All right, so let's look at verse 14. John 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's all read that out loud together. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this passage of Scripture, uh, it really is impossible to completely teach in one sitting. And, of course, it would be impossible to completely teach in an entire lifetime. But, Lord, as we look at it this morning, I pray that uh, all of us will be encouraged, that we'll be moved on in our faith. And then, Lord, if there's someone here who has not received you, that they will receive you as Savior today. And, Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, there's no possible way, as I've said several times this morning, to explain completely uh, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. It is so full of information, so full of doctrine, so full of truth, that it would be impossible to, to cover it all. Secondly, um, it is an amazing thing that we have it to read. The fact that God revealed this information to us, it's just mind-blowing. And then the information that's in the text is beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet I'm going to try and explain some of it this morning. So the first thing that I want us to see in this text is who Jesus Christ is. Who Jesus Christ is. So look at verse, verses 1 and through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, I hope that you have memorized these three verses. If you have not, every Christian needs to memorize these verses. It tells us who Jesus Christ is. Notice I'm not saying who Jesus Christ was. It is appropriate to say who Jesus Christ was, because He was this. And He is this. And He always will be this. The Bible says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today... And forever. That's the Savior that we worship. We live in a world of change, don't we? Sometimes hope and change, which only leaves us with change. But the, the, there, the, we do live in a world of change, and yet the more things change, the more Jesus Christ stays the same. And the more things change, the more important it is that we see that Jesus Christ has not changed. What a wonderful thing this is. And so when we look at this passage... I want us to see who Jesus Christ is. The first thing that, we, uh, that comes to us immediately is that He is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. Look at what it says, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word. Now, the Word, that, that is Jesus' name. That was His name before He came to earth. The Word. That's His name. I mentioned in the Bible study that one of the commentaries that I'm reading gave nine different sources where John could have found this word, the Greek word logos. Nine different sources where he might have come across it. And none of the options were it was his name. 
I want to call that commentator and help him. Help him identify. Here, let me tell you where John got this. It's Jesus' name. And the second place, the second explanation for where he got it is God gave it to him. Right? One of the things, be careful looking for the sources that the biblical writers used for their information. Where did John get this information? Where did John come up with this language? The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible says holy men of God spake uh, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All Scripture is given by inspiration. That is that God gave those very words. That's where it comes from. I'm going to be, uh, Lord willing, preaching a message on inerrancy, the, the, import, the importance of biblical inerrancy. That is, that the Bible was inspired by God, it was preserved by God, and it is completely without error. That belief that we hold here is not held in broader Christianity. And even those who say they believe in inerrancy, when you actually read what they write, they say they believe in inerrancy so they can keep their position while teaching something that undermines that inerrancy. I'll give you an example of that here in a minute. But there's something that we need to understand. Every word of God is pure, the Bible says. There, there are no mistakes in the Scriptures. Purified seven times, the Bible is very, very pure. And so it is 100% accurate. Well, when the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. When the Bible tells us that about Jesus Christ, it is announcing the deity of Jesus Christ, or the Godship of Jesus Christ. Now, we are not polytheists, that is, many polytheist gods. We don't believe in many gods. When I was in Rome, I went to the Pantheon. And what is the Pantheon? It is a temple built for all the gods. A temple built for all the gods. Well, there was a temple that was built for the one true God. And that was simply a picture of the true temple that's in heaven. That's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9. That wasn't the real temple. The real temple is in heaven where the one true God is. We're not polytheists. We don't believe in many gods. We believe in one God. And you young people, this is really important because you're exposed to all these different gods, you know, Hercules or whoever, Percy Jackson, whatever. You are introduced to a lot of different gods. Those are myths. This is not a myth. This is historical fact. It is a fact. There is only one true God. Now, we're not going to take the time to go there, but you might want to mark down the 82nd Psalm and look at what God says about small g gods and what the one true God has done with these small g gods who are not really gods. It's an interesting study. You'll have to do that on your own. Now, He is the eternal God, and what is being stated here is that He is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The Gospel writer John is the only writer that uses that title, the Word. The Word. He uses it in the Gospel of John, he uses it in 1 John, and he uses it in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting that the one that is called the disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who refers to him by his pre-incarnate, before he came in the flesh, name, the Word. 
Well, the Bible in 1 John does say there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, if you had looked that up in your Bible, it, there might be a footnote that says this is not found in some of the oldest manuscripts. Well, Tertullian in around 200 AD quoted that verse in his letters to Praxis. I could show you. I've got it. Well, not the original one, but I have a copy of it. It'd be cool if I had the original one. I'd sell it and we could build a new building. That'd be awesome. But he wrote that 200 years before these manuscripts that they say don't include it. And just so you know, he's writing it when he, he, he quotes it, these three are one, as he's talking about the Trinity in 200 A.D. So don't ever let anybody tell you that that's not supposed to be in your Bible. There's, I've got a book that's 400 pages of evidence for it being in your Bible. Don't let anybody take your scriptures away. Amen? Don't let anybody take it away. This verse, it identifies Jesus as being uh, the, the second person of the Godhead. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. The Bible uses the word Godhead. And the Bible uses the word Godhead three times. Isn't that interesting? And so the, the Godhead is the, the term that the Bible uses for the Trinity. And this passage, it identifies Jesus Christ as being a member of the Godhead. Then, not only do we see that He is the eternal God, that He is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but He is also the Creator. Do you see that? Look at verse 3. All things were made by Him... And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, you realize that there are Christians who don't believe that. Or people who call themselves Christians who don't believe that. That, that, You you understand that. There there are people who call themselves Christians who don't believe that. And what they will say is, well, I believe that Jesus created everything. And they will say, that's just your interpretation. Right? And what is our answer? All I did was read it. The same, or all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There is no interpretation necessary. All things, do you know what all things means? All things. Do you know what made means? Made. Do you know what without him means? Without him. Jesus Christ made everything. Now, let me tell you why this is important to us today. Um, Last week, the, the head of the Catholic Church said this, When we read about creation in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God was a magician with a magic wand able to do everything. But that is not so. He created human beings and let them develop according to the inter- internal laws that He gave to each one so that they could reach their fulfillment. He goes on to say that, that the Big Bang and evolution are not inconsistent with the Scriptures, just that God was involved with it. He's just got it backwards. In the Bible, the bang comes at the end, not the beginning. (laughs) Right? It's so interesting that he would come up with this. Now, why is that? In Pope John Paul II... He said the same thing, that evolution is not incompatible with Christian teaching. It's only incompatible with Christian teaching if you actually believe Christian teaching. Evolution is only incompatible with the Scriptures if you believe the Scriptures. 
if you don't believe the scriptures, then it's not incompatible. And this goes back to something called scholasticism. Scholasticism is a philosophical school of thought that was brought into Catholicism by Thomas Aquinas. How many of you have heard of Thomas Aquinas? He loved Aristotelian, Aristotle. He loved Aristotelian philosophy, and he blended Christianity or Roman Catholic's form of Christianity with Christian, quote, Christian philosophy. Now, without getting too much into it, we need to remember that the word philosophy came from Pythagoras, and it is a lover of wisdom. Well, the Bible says that the world by wisdom knew not God. The Bible says in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So how do you blend Christianity, that by which we know God, with that by which you cannot know God? How do you blend those two? You can only blend those two if the words don't mean what they say. If you can, if you can impose your meaning on words, then you can twist it into something called Christian philosophy. If you believe the word of God, then you understand that philosophy, worldly philosophy, is the complete antithesis, the, the opposite, the enemy of the wisdom of God. Now, that's clear, isn't it? Look, look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's make sure that we get this. Keep your place in 1 John, now that you've turned away from it. But go to Colossians chapter 2. And look at verse 8. Let's see if the Bible is clear here. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Okay? Is that clear? Does that need interpretation? How many of you know what spoiled meat is? Right? How many of you enjoy spoiled meat? Some of you enjoy Boiled barley, it's called beer, but that's another conversation. Um, how many of you enjoy spoiled children? No, 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 no. Don't be spoiled. Don't be spoiled. The Bible, God says that we are not to be spoiled by philosophy. Now, notice there are no qualifiers. If you have a modern translation, they don't like that, so they, they change it to empty and false philosophy. The only problem is that there's not a Greek text in the world that says that, okay, that, that's not in the Bible. The Bible says beware of philosophy. So what happened was Thomas Aquinas brought this philosophy into Christianity in the Middle Ages and that led to the, the Copernicus-Galileo controversy and all of that. That is all a, that's all based on philosophy, not on the Scriptures. We could have saved them a whole lot of time by looking at where the Bible says the circle of the earth. Right? The, Bible, the Bible says it, but they don't believe the Bible. Many people don't believe the Bible, so they don't just take what it says. So the reason that Pope Francis can say that evolution is not incompatible with the Scriptures is because he has a philosophical approach to the Scriptures, not an authoritative approach to the Scriptures. You see, for us, this is our authority. We have traditions, right? We come on Sunday morning and we gather together at 1030 and, and we sit in a cold room until the pastor finally runs out of something to say. That's our tradition. 
All right? We could change the time of our service and it would have nothing to do with Scripture. Those are traditions that we have. Another tradition is we eat when we get together. Now, as Baptists, if we changed that tradition, then we would probably have a church split, right? Because another tradition in Baptist churches is splitting over things like food. See, these are traditions. The only authority that we have in this church is this. This is our authority. Well, for the Pope, his authority is the tradition of the church and the Word of God. And now, please, if you happen to be a Catholic here, that is what he would tell you. So that's not, I'm not disparaging him. I am describing him in accurate terms. He would, he would tell you that. And the reason that that's a problem is they do have a dealing authority, a, duel, a dueling authority, the, the scriptures and tradition, but the scriptures are understood through the tradition rather than understanding the tradition through the scriptures. We have traditions and we understand those traditions through the Scriptures. We assemble together because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Right? So our, our tradition is more than, than a tradition. It's something that we do based on what the Bible tells us to do. We teach the Word because the Bible says, teach the Word. We preach the Word because the Bible says, Preach the word. We exhort, which is to motivate to righteousness because the Bible tells us to exhort. We reprove, that is, we point out what is wrong because the Bible tells us to reprove. We rebuke, that is, we chasten for what is wrong because the Bible tells us to rebuke. The basis for what we do is in the word of God. And yet, what the website that I read, they were commenting on this. Uh, on, on the Pope's statement, and they said this, Creationists like Ken Ham, a prominent Australian minister and head of creationism nonprofit Answers in Genesis, did not receive Pope Francis' latest pro-science sentiments positively. So remember, if you believe in creation, you are not pro-science. Isn't that interesting? The latter statements about evolution, a scientific fact that has attached or that has attracted negative reaction from faith groups. So this guy is saying that evolution is a scientific fact. Particularly hit a nerve among creationists, many of whom declare the literal interpretation of Genesis, the Genesis story of creation to be true. Now, how many of you believe that the creation story of Genesis is true? Okay. So he's talking about us. So listen to what Ken Ham said. In this instance, Pope Francis, like so many other religious leaders, is putting man's word above God's word. And not only that, he's also going so far as to say that only a magician with a magic wand could create the way that God said he created in Genesis. Frankly, this shows a lack of understanding of who Scripture claims God is, the all-powerful creator who is capable of doing what is impossible to man. Sadly, this view of God is rapidly spreading even throughout the Protestant church. All right, so Ken Ham's statement is really good. Can you imagine uh, me as your pastor saying, Jay, you believe that God created the world. That means you think that he's a magician with a magic wand. Can you imagine calling God a magician? 
I didn't say it. The Pope said it. Why? Because he does not take John 1 as literal revelation from a supernatural God. It's so important that we get that. So he is revealed, Jesus is revealed to us as the eternal God, as a member of the Godhead, and as a creator. Now, lest any of you think that I'm being um, unduly hard on Catholics, let's be unduly hard on Protestants and evangelicals. How many of you have heard of J.I. Packer? Probably the most famous theologian in evangelical Christianity. Every person that writes a book on theology, they, have, they need their endorsement from J.I. Packer. Listen to what Packer said. He said, there are three views historically taken on Genesis 1, on Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 4. First, the naive view that what's taking place here is what would in principle have been observed if one was there during it. It's, it's naive to think that what you read in Genesis 1 is what you would have observed if you were there when God did it. Days are 24-hour days, a literal week's work on God's part, during which God put chaotic mass into shape. Then he goes on, describes a second view that we're not going to get into today. The third view is the way almost unanimous by Old Testament scholars today, Roman Catholic or Protestant, liberal or conservative, they take the view that this account is on the face of it, a quasi-liturgical celebration of the fact of creation rather than science in disguise. How many of you are helped by that? So when you read Genesis 1, remember, it's a quasi-liturgical celebration of what happened rather than a scientific description of what actually happened. Thank you, J.I. He says, Genesis 1 is in its entirety a prose poem. He goes on to say that he does not know whether Eve actually spoke to a serpent or whether there actually was a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. He says it does not matter because poets of the period who wrote outside the Bible used trees in a metaphorical sense in their literature. This is Christianity in the 21st century. This is, this is where we are. You see, the Bible says, Thy word is true from the beginning. So the Bible says. And how does the Bible begin? In the beginning. It is true. If, if Genesis 1 through 11 are not historically accurate, then man did not fall, sin did not enter into the world, and we do not need a redeemer. But the Bible says, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The, the Bible says, As in one man all die, then one man, one man all live. Through Jesus Christ we can have eternal life, because Adam fell, we needed Jesus Christ to come in the flesh. It's so important that we see this. This is not just poetry. This is a statement of fact that is fundamental and foundational to everything that we believe as Christians. If we say it's not true, then we believe in nothing. We must 
Believe that in the beginning was the Word. All things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. The world is going away from this people. It's going away from it. We cannot follow the world's thinking. We must follow the Scriptures. We must. So He's the Creator. Uh, Go back to John 1. We see, first of all, who who He is. But secondly, we see why He came. Why He came. Look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to give us life and light. Did I read it backwards? No. Yeah. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to give us life, and He came to give us light. How many of you are glad that you have life? Right? But you know your life is going to end. For what is life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Right? Remember the, the, the man who was going to build his barns and bring all of his materials into it? And Jesus said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. We don't know. We're not promised tomorrow. But we are promised eternal life if we receive the life that Jesus Christ came to give. If He's not really the Word, then it doesn't matter. If He's not really the life, it doesn't matter. If He's not really the truth, it doesn't matter. But if He is who He claims to be, then He came to give us life. Not only did He come to give us life, He came to show us the Father. Look at verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So what did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to declare who the Father was. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that He is the express image of His person. He's the express image of the Father. Colossians 2, we read the portion of verse 8. Verse 9 says, talking about Jesus, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. What's the next word? Bodily. Bodily. So Jesus Christ came to show us who the Father was and to give us eternal life. And this is life, that thou mayest know. Look at it. I I don't want to misquote it. Look at John chapter 17. John 17, look at verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Where does life come from? From God. As revealed in the Son. As drawn, as we are drawn to Him by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Godhead. So why did He come? He came to declare the Father, and He came to give us light. So what are we supposed to do with this information? What are we supposed to do? Go back to John 1. Look at verse 5. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Do you realize how many people don't understand Jesus? Now, let's be careful. None of us fully understand Jesus. 
but we can understand what's been revealed of him to us. Many people look at Jesus. There are many people in a building today, and they're looking up on the wall, and there's Jesus Christ on the cross. And they don't understand. And so they pray that maybe Mary will bring me to, if I pray to Mary, she'll bring me to the son because the son can't resist his mother. And they see Jesus Christ as this pathetic figure on the cross. But can I tell you something? He's not on the cross anymore. Go to that Hebrews 1. I want to show you something. Hebrews 1, look at verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So where is Jesus Christ right now? He is, he is seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Is that right? Is, is that just poetry or is that right? It's right. So Jesus is not on the cross He went into the tomb and three days later, he himself rolled the stone away and he walked out alive forevermore. He walked the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and taught his disciples. He was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then he ascended up into heaven and he's coming back the same way that he left to bring us to be with him forever. Amen? That is the truth of the Word of God. Jesus Christ is not on the cross. Jesus Christ got off of the cross, and now He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He purged our sins one time. That's what it says. One time. One time. He's not on the cross, folks. So, go back to John 1. What are we to do with this Jesus? Verse 5 again. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We're back at John 1. And then we hear a little bit about John the Baptist. Look at what it says in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. There was a man. Not there was a church. There was a man. God uses people, not institutions. Grace Baptist Church is not going to reach Sydney. Dan knew. Dodie New, Ty Blackford, all of us individually are people that God has chosen to use. Isn't that awesome? It's unbelievable that God does not establish institutions. God uses people. And God sent this man named John, and we learned some things about him. But let's drop down to what we're supposed to do with what John told us. Now, of course, this John is John the Baptist. That's different from John the Beloved. The the John who God used to write this book is describing another John. But let's go to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, what is repetition in the Bible? 
God's volume control. Have you noticed that God cares that we know that Jesus made the world? It's amazing. And yet, and yet, there are Christians who say that He didn't. It's, it's apostasy is what it is, all right? He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Now, He came into His own people, the Jews. They didn't receive Him. He came into His own family. His family thought He was crazy, His brothers and sisters. And if, if you're not sure about whether or not Jesus had brothers and sisters, go to Mark chapter 6. We're not going to go there today, but write it down. Mark 6 tells us he had brothers and sisters, and everybody knew he had brothers and sisters. That perpetual virginity of Mary, that's heresy. It's false. It's completely false. The Bible says that, that uh, Joseph, he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Firstborn. Then there were others. See, Jesus was virgin-born. The others were not. It's very clear. And he came into his own and his own received him. Now, his own family didn't even believe who he was. His own people didn't believe who he was. And his creation didn't believe who he was. That's what happened. In general, most there are going to be more people in hell than will be in heaven. Why? Because the world was made by him and the world knew him not. And the only way to have eternal life is to know him. That's why he came. Look at what the verse says. He came into his own, verse 11, and his own received him not. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So what are you and I supposed to do? We're supposed to believe and receive. We're supposed to believe in who he is. Who is he? He is the eternal God. He's a member of the Godhead. He's the creator of the world. He came to give life and light. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And at the, he's right now seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. That's who he is. Look at what the Bible says. But as many as received him, verse 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his what? What's his name? The Word. He's the Word. He lived, he existed before time, whose goings forth have been from everlasting, Micah 5, 2 says. Look at what the Bible says in verse 15. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, you've got to understand this. Jesus was born at least six months after John. And yet John says he was before him. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word. You see, Jesus Christ existed before His body existed. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, Thou hast prepared for me a body. And what was that body for? We'll see that in a minute. So why He came? He came to declare the Father, what should we do? Receive Him. Believe on His name. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? You might say, I receive Him every time I take communion. No. No. What that's saying is that Jesus Christ is dying anew every time you take it. The Bible says He died one time. What does it mean to receive Him? It means to believe on His name. Do you believe that He is the Savior and that it is only through Him that you can have eternal life? Not Him plus works. Not Him plus sacraments. Not Him plus church attendance. Not Him plus giving. It is only through Him. That's it. It, th by faith are you saved 
through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The only way to be saved is to receive Him and believe on His name. Plus nothing. Plus nothing. That's what we are supposed to do. When we do that, what will we see? Now we're to my message for today. What will we see? Verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. See, all of that truth about who Jesus Christ is, none of it would matter to us if He had not come in the flesh. The the fact that He was life and light was true before He came in the flesh. When He came in the flesh, now you and I can see it. Now we can be saved. Had He not come, we could not be saved. It's so important that we understand that. And the Word was made flesh. Then look at what it says. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. When we believe on Him, what do we see? Well, we'll see His glory. We'll see His glory. Look at um, chapter 12. This is an interesting thing. The difference between what the Old Testament prophets saw and what we see. John chapter 12, verse 41. These things said Isaiah, that's Isaiah, that's the Greek spelling of the Hebrew name Isaiah. These things said Isaiah when he saw, what's it say? His glory and spake of him. So when did Isaiah see his glory? That's Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, it says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And a little, far, a little bit later, he said, and woe is me, for I am undone. That means he was completely coming apart. He, he, he saw the glory of God, and he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for I have seen the Lord. All right? So he saw some of God's glory. He saw some of God's glory. The Bible says in John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time. The Bible says that no man can see God and live. Is that right? Go back to Exodus chapter 33. And we beheld His glory. Now remember what has happened. God has told Moses that He's going to send the pillar and the fire ahead, but He's not going to go. And Moses pleads with God to come. And so God says that He will still go with the people. And look at what it says in verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. And He said, this is Moses, And He said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand... And thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. What happens when his face is shown? 
Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, verse 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and every and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? No one. That's the answer to the rhetorical question. No one. Why? Because no one can see God's face and live. When Jesus Christ reveals his face, all sin must go. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose what? Face. The earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So when the glory of God, when the glory of His countenance is revealed, all sin must go. All evil, all wickedness. The Bible says the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. When does that happen? When Jesus Christ's face is revealed to the sin of the world. It's unbelievable. Now, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all... With open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, Isaiah saw a glimpse of the glory of God and he was undone. Moses could only see a little bit of it as God hid him, hid him in the cleft of the rock. When, when Jesus Christ returns... Everybody in the world that has not been saved is going to see him and flee and beg for the rocks to fall on him. But at the end of, at the end of time, at the great white throne judgment, the earth and the heavens are going to flee away from the face of God. But what did Jesus Christ do? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Somehow, in the wisdom of God, He has allowed us to see His glory in such a way that it won't kill us. It will save us. When you acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and you begin looking at Him, how do we do it? The Bible says, with open face. That's how we look at Him. We don't have to look at Him. We look at Him with open face. And we behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What are we supposed to do 
We are not supposed to be distracted by the world and all that the world has to offer. I love to look at pretty things. I love to have pretty things. I enjoy going to pretty places. But none of those things can compare with the glory of Jesus Christ. And what are we supposed to do? But we see Jesus. That's what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. But when we look around and we see that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to lay aside every weight that does so easily beset us. We're supposed to run the race that's set before us. We're supposed to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We can look at everything that's falling apart in this world. We can look at people who no longer believe in the deity of Christ. They no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They don't believe in the creation of the world. We can be distracted by all of that when what we ought to be doing is looking at the one true God revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ, who has offered to us the gift of eternal life and the hope of heaven to come. Hallelujah! That's what we have. That's the hope that's set before us. And the Word was made flesh. He became a man. Why did He become a man? Because God cannot die. That body was created to be beaten, to be whipped, to be pierced, to be nailed to a tree, to have a crown of thorns put on it so that we can have eternal life. That's who we see. What idolatry for us to spend more time looking at the world than looking at Him. That's who Jesus Christ is. What will we see? We'll see His glory. I'd love to tell you more about His glory, but it would take all of eternity. Do you see Him today? Can we finish there? Go to, to Hebrews chapter 12. Get Hebrews 12 and... Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look at the Hebrews 2 passage first. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower, lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, should t- that He by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto what? Glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. Do you see Him today? Do you see Him? Look at Hebrews 12. Verse 1. Wherefore? Seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all those people from Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto who? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint 
in your own minds. Some of you are going through trouble right now. And life is hard. You know what you need to do? Look unto Jesus. Behold His glory. Bask in His presence. Enter into the throne of God. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we don't deserve to know you.